Today, my guest is Jake Nichols. Jake is a pharmacist in long-term recovery. So not only does he have personal experience in the field of addiction medicine, but he has taken those experiences and become a strong patient advocate for expanded access to evidence-based treatment programs and his company works toward reducing barriers to accessing that care. Welcome, Jake. Thank you, Terry, pleasure to be here. I heard your story recently and I wanted listeners to hear it as well. Sure. First, because it's another reminder that healthcare professionals are indeed at risk of substance abuse. And second, I think we need to hear these stories not only so that we can see examples of recovery, but also so that we can connect on a personal level. Yeah. I think that each time we hear one of these stories, we remove some of the judgment that some may have toward those with a substance abuse problem. It's easy to judge. I would never do that, right? But here you are, an educated pharmacist colleague that also may have thought the same thing at one time about yourself. So let's get to your story. And then I also want to hear about how you've turned this battle into your life's work. So take us through your story. Yeah, well, thank you very much for the introduction. Um, you know, my story is, is actually relatively common, especially when we talk about healthcare providers that have struggled with substance use. Um, you know, from a, a family history standpoint, there, there's always an interesting background. And, and this, as Terry mentioned, this is kind of a taboo topic that's not easy to talk about, whether we're talking about substance use or behavioral health or, or issues of both. And, and that was no different in my family. We had a very long history of substance use issues, especially on my dad's side of the family, long history of behavioral health issues on both sides of the family. And there were topics that were never really discussed. And, and when questions were asked, um, it was quickly pushed off to another topic. So um, there were a lot of cultural things and just generational things that were present and that still are present for many people that, that don't facilitate conversation around this with, with families and especially with kids. Um, for me, um, you know, there isn't some sentinel event or, or period that I can point to or some, you know, adverse childhood event that I can say that was the reason for my substance use. And, and too often in the media, we hear, you know, there always seems to be this, this point in time where the person started going down this road, as they like to say, and it was either from a prescription or some sort of a trauma or that that's not always the case. And frequently it, it isn't the case. And you know, for me, I never had prescribed opioids. I had never been prescribed controlled substances, but I certainly was a curious individual. And, and you know, my substance use, like many in the, the early 90s, was, was very limited in terms of what was available, you know, through my, my high school and teenager years. It was alcohol and, and marijuana or cannabis and, and occasionally things like LSD or mushrooms would float through once a year, but we were certainly never exposed to the the level of substances that children are exposed to these days. And, and obviously the marketing dynamics have, have changed and, you know, from a an illicit standpoint and availability is a lot easier and, and obviously technology and the internet have facilitated that. So, but, you know, patterns started to emerge very early in my life. Um, I was introduced to marijuana when I was 13. 
There was something very different about how I responded to that. And, and of course, all of this is really hindsight and, and, you know, again, working in this field for 12 years now and, and learning and being educated on it. But, you know, my response to it was very different than my friends. It was seemed to be a little bit more enjoyable for me. And, and I would partake in that um, a lot more regularly than other folks would. And, you know, I'd always have a, a bag of cannabis, marijuana, uh, weed on me at, at parties and events and, you know, share with everybody. But the key facet of impairing my social abilities or my academic performance weren't really present at that time. So again, like many healthcare providers, I was a high performer academically. I did very well in school. I was always on what we call the honor roll. Um, and obviously that afforded me an opportunity to go to pharmacy school. And, and I went to pharmacy school because my best friend's dad uh, had a small town pharmacy in our town um, in Natick, Massachusetts, and, and just loved that relationship he had with the community and, and you know, how revered he was, um, you know, by, by folks, not only patients and the individuals in the community, but the physicians and the other clinicians in the community. And that's why I went to pharmacy school. And very quickly, my eyes were open to more uh, defined controlled substances that were obviously available by prescription. And like a lot of folks in, in college, and this isn't specific to healthcare programs by any means, but um, I was exposed to the use of stimulants to aid me in studying for exams. And we had groups of friends that always had access to it, whether it was by prescriptions they had or, or, or blatantly diverting it from pharmacies they worked at. So there was never an issue of access for me. And, and you know, it started with studying. It progressed very quickly to any time I had to do a task or a project um, to daily use um, in most cases. And, and again, hindsight being 2020, when I was around the age of 20, about my freshman year of pharmacy school, some very clear patterns started to emerge. And these would later follow me into my professional career where they would cause a lot more problems. And what would happen is I would, I would go on a, a long-term binge, basically, of these substances. And again, it started out with stimulant drugs like Ritalin and Adderall and amphetamine-type drugs. Uh, opioids were introduced into the mix uh, quite quickly um, within six months of trying those stimulants. And, and that really, for me, was my two drug of choice combination was stimulants and opioids. And when I would go on this binge, you know, you're taking medications or substances that really enhance your alertness and you can't go to sleep and you really, you know, just agitated for, for lack of a better term. And, and, um, after a few days of doing that, your body just can't handle it anymore. Um, no matter what age you are and, and you basically just collapse and, and I would stay in bed usually for up to almost two weeks at a time and, and basically just allowing my body to repair itself. I mean, I had very difficult um, issues with sleep. Um, again, my, my body would have to kind of hit the pause button and allow the sleep to catch up. And, and again, that would take sometimes almost two weeks um, to get past that. And Friends would notice, family would notice, um, but you know, when you're in the throes of addiction, and unfortunately many people have been subject to this, the excuses and the lies that you come up with to kind of cover your tracks become extremely convincing. 
And again, this was something that I learned much later on as I, I learned more about this disease. But, you know, using substances literally becomes a, a survival mechanism. And as such, the brain will push back on anything that interferes with that. And, and that's what creates this ability to explain away your behaviors in a very convincing way. And it would happen two or three times a year. Um, but when I was in school, you know, I could always get away with it because, you know, the consequences were missing an exam or missing a class. And, and I could always make those things up. So there was never any long-term or, or persistent issues in my performance. Um, although, again, a lot of people were noticing that this was going on and, and some people clearly had an idea of, of what the issue is. And again, I say that not to point a finger at anybody in my immediate social circle as being, you know, having responsibility that they didn't uh, address. It was completely my issue to deal with. But I see that as a very common theme, especially in healthcare, um, where peers especially may notice that something is going on. There's some behaviors here that may not just seem normal for that individual. Um, but we don't really dig into it for fear of conflict, um, fear of having to deal with legal issues and so forth. Um, so again, somehow I managed to graduate pharmacy school with honors, um, went into my professional career and, you know, things would change very rapidly from there. Um, my substance use early on in my career was, was still sporadic, if, if we can call it that. Um, it was, you know, occasional. It was when I got together with my friends from school, maybe occasionally on the weekends, by this time I, I was married. So, you know, I, I wasn't at a point where I was doing this a lot around my spouse um, or my family for that matter. But that would quickly change as I progressed to another job where my responsibilities basically became unmanageable very quickly. And this is one of those really scary memories of addiction and, and just shows you how deep seated it can be in the brain. But Along this journey, anybody that's been through this will tell you there are very clear moments along the way. Um, we call them moments of clarity. And, and you just remember these events as if they were happening right now. And, and this was one of them. And, and I can remember being in my office at work and really struggling with the anxiety around how am I going to get all this work done? And immediately it was, it was almost like if it was waiting. My brain just said, drugs. Drugs will serve you well. They did in the past, or that's how it was interpreted. You know, why wouldn't they work now? And, you know, at that time, again, my, my disease wasn't at the point where I was forced to divert. Um, and, and I use that term lightly. Um, but I had other options um, to obtain substances. And, and that was around the time that um, purchasing drugs off the Internet got very easy um, and was a, you know, there was instructions, you know, two clicks of a mouse and you could find a, you know, a, a dealer somewhere in another part of the world that would ship you controlled substances, whether it be opioids or stimulants. Um, we had these uh, rash of, of crackpot pain clinics, which everybody has read about primarily in Florida and the South. Um, you didn't have to go down there. You could actually call these places and do an online consult. And, and I again, use air quotes around that term because there was no consult. It was literally a phone call with one question, what would you like and how many? Um, so I was using those methods to procure substances. 
I also became quite adept at convincing prescribers that I knew and worked with um, that I had certain conditions um, and convinced them to write me prescriptions for those conditions. And one being ADHD, where again, we use stimulants quite frequently. Um, you know, I claim injuries, you know, anytime we had a snowstorm up here in the Boston area and say, hey, could you get me some Vicodin? And, you know, why don't you make it the ES? And, and if you don't mind prescribing 60, so I have them. And it sounds ridiculous, but when these individuals are your colleagues and your friends and you're a well-trusted, respected pharmacist, they don't tend to question that. They think, well, this guy knows the drugs better than we do. Doesn't seem to be a risk here. He knows what he's talking about. And again, not a responsibility on them, but you become very convincing. Your brain is finding a way to basically manipulate your relationships to get what you need. And, you know, long story short, if, if you think about those behaviors that I described in the past um, while I was in school occurring in a professional setting, it becomes much more noticeable. And um, people start to notice, my bosses start to notice, people start to question what's going on. I'm not showing up for my clinic where I had patients coming in to see me and I had pharmacy residents and students that were just kind of walking around aimlessly because I wasn't there to guide them and mentor them. And, you know, eventually they have enough of that. Um, and, and, you know, it comes to a point where, you know, you wonder if they really understood what was going on. Uh, nobody ever questioned me in terms of my substance use. Um, you know, at that stage, I, I actually did confide in my, my supervisor and his response was very interesting. He, he, I'll never forget this. He said to me, after I confided in him, my substance use issues, he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. You're going to go get some help. I'm going to cover for you until you're able to come back, uh, do what you need to do to get better. And we're never going to talk about this again. And I remember asking, why would you say that? And his response was, do you understand as a pharmacist with a reputation as a drug addict, you will never get a job again. So I'm going to do you a favor. And again, I say that because in his mind, he thought he was doing the right thing. Maybe he was. I don't know the answer. I obviously know a little bit more now working in this field. But, you know, his thought was, I'm not going to take this young guy who's respected in our field and, and is on the verge of having a family and destroy his career. Um, but again, it goes to the lack of education and knowledge and understanding of addiction that usually that little nudge and helping somebody out is probably not enough for most people. A very, very small percentage make it that way. So, you know, by this point, my finances are in disarray. My marriage is in disarray. I get dismissed from that job and I go on to another position where exactly the same thing happens. And, you know, somehow I'm able to last for a few years, but, you know, as you're going through this, you create a, a, a path of destruction. Um, I always thought of it as like a tornado. When you see a path of a tornado go through a town, it's like you leave all this destruction in your wake. And, um, you know, whether it's friends, whether it's colleagues, family, all are included in that. And, and you know, the liability, I think, around this and, and you know, the, the fear and the, the lack of understanding and primarily the stigma associated with this disease really prevents people from addressing it and digging into it. And, you know, that's something I've noticed over the years. We, we do a very poor job with is educating people around those signs and symptoms of, of what substance use looks like, especially in healthcare providers. 
So I left that job, I go to another job, and, and this is where everything would really come to fruition, if you will. And my tolerance had grown so much at that time that I was I started writing fake prescriptions. In addition to doing all the other things that, that I was doing, I was uh, clearly diverting substances from places that I worked. I would literally just order substances from our wholesaler. Instead of the box going into the pharmacy, it went into the trunk of my car. Um, as, as people can imagine, you know, and eventually you will get caught. Um, and we hope it's, it's before a point where somebody's had a really serious consequence. And, um, you know, I was lucky enough to, to fall into that, uh, bucket, if you will. And, and, you know, they, they figured out what I was doing and, and approached me and confronted me about it and, um, started this process that put me on this road to recovery and, and, um, you know, you, you deal with a lot of things. Um, when this happens, as you can imagine, to anybody for that matter, you feel like your world is literally ending, um, that there's no way out of this, um, your life is over, you know, your, your finances are in disarray, your professional career is done with, um, and it's very easy to just curl up in a ball and, and just say, forget it, you know, I can't get out of this. But, um, you know, for reasons that are still unknown to me, I decided that wasn't going to be the case for me. And, and I think the biggest bonus that I had that many people don't is I had a great support network of folks. And that included providers around me, that included peers, that included friends, that included family, but just as much, probably even more so, um, I had many folks speak out against me. Um, and call me things that, you know, I still struggle to hear these days, um, you know, that I had taken advantage of my position as a, a you know, public health care provider, that I, you know, betrayed the public trust. Um, you know, I, I was nothing but a, a liar and a thief. Um, you know, these are, are things that most of us are raised um, to not be. Um, and when somebody calls you that, especially in a public forum, it's, it's very, very damaging. Um, you know, the, the other piece that I was very lucky to have is we had a very structured treatment program for healthcare providers in, in Massachusetts. Um, the problem was at that time, and this was 2010 when I entered this program, as, as in many states, it was more of a punitive legal program whereby you were contracted to do certain things and, and it, you know, you're required to go to a certain number of 12-step group meetings. Um, you have to go to a professional support group. You have to see a therapist. Every day you have to check um, a system and, and see if you've been chosen for random urine drug screens. And um, as you can imagine at the time, I'm thinking this is most cumbersome, ridiculous. You know, why would they do this for me? And this is awful. I'm being persecuted. And, and, you know, again, I look back on it now and I truthfully needed that structure. I needed that accountability. And again, I was very lucky to have a program that I could go into that afforded me that, um, you know, legally, it took me a very long time to rectify those issues. I was charged with well over 500 felonies that were uh, all primarily related to diverting controlled substances, um, as well as writing fake prescriptions. Um, I, I've seen a lot of progress in the legal system, especially as it relates to healthcare providers, where they're more likely to allow licensing boards um, a little bit more latitude in, in managing this as opposed to throwing folks in prison. 
Um, you know, but I've also seen, you know, peers, I've called classmates for that matter that have struggled with similar problems that ended up doing jail time um, because of this. And, and their offenses just by the numbers were a lot uh, less severe than, than mine were, um, which is interesting. So we, we still have a lot of disparities out there as it relates to, to how we deal with our healthcare providers around this. Um, for me, it, it also took about five years to get my pharmacy license back. Um, the states will actually give it back to you after you've been in their program for a year, as long as you've maintained stipulations in the contract. Um, I was at that time working in addiction, um, and I didn't technically need my pharmacy license. So I said, I'm going to finish Then I'll go back and request it back, and, and, and I did. And, you know, that the board at that time was a very different pharmacy than what I had uh, faced five years previous. Um, and I think a lot of it was just, you know, this, between 2010, 2015, the explosion in overdose deaths and the number of folks that they were seeing that were coming before them struggling with similar issues um, really helped to bring down some of the stigma and the stereotypes that go along with this. And, and you know, I'm glad to say that many healthcare provider treatment programs have evolved from more of a punitive model to more of a therapeutic model. Um, to be clear, we still have a, a tremendous way to go um, but it has improved dramatically in, in again, the, the 12 years I've been working in this field. Um, I've also been very lucky to have opportunities. Um, I'm obviously quite public about my experience and, and many of my peers that are in a treatment program with um, really all the toxic shame. Um, a lot of folks retired or just stopped working or went into another field altogether. Um, they just couldn't face, you know, their peers and, and you know, uh, licensing boards and so forth. And, and they were just completely debilitated by this and, and embarrassed. And it's, it's really tough to watch. And a lot of them just said, well, you know, forget pharmacy, forget healthcare. I'm going to go do something else. Um, and many of those folks aren't happy today. Um, they're not doing what they love to do, but some of them have been blessed to, to find other things that they have. Um, the, you know, again, the, the last part that I'll, I'll kind of address here is the, you know, the stigma around this is truly what keeps us from moving forward and really getting a hold of this whole epidemic, um, whether it's at, on the whole in the larger scale or even in healthcare. But, um, you know, the reason that only about 12% of people that have this disease get treatment is likely because of stigma. Um, especially when we talk about healthcare providers. If, if a state has a voluntary treatment program or an employer has an EAP, um, employee assistance program, and, and individuals decide to take advantage of that, um, and many times it still leads to consequences in terms of surrendering your license, losing your income stream. A lot of folks, most folks have families that they're supporting. It's, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, especially when you have a disease that's literally telling you you don't have a disease and you don't need help. So again, we've gotten a little bit better with that. Um, and again, I'm pleased to be clear, I'm not saying it's safe to give somebody their license back while they're in the midst of treatment for a substance use disorder. Um, but we do need to strike a balance between protecting patient safety, the public, but also taking care of our own in terms of healthcare providers. And I'm confident that we'll get there some.
Yeah, no, everything you say uh, makes sense. I have a question about when the when your first supervisor told you to go get treatment, did you reach out for any treatment or did you just kind of tell him you were doing no, it? No, I, I told him I was. Um, okay. I, I was using the excuse that my depression and my anxiety was really overwhelming me. And 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 that was, I'd been diagnosed with those when I was 18. And But I was saying, well, you know, the substance use is more of a symptom of those. I'm just trying to kind of self-medicate. And again, you're talking yourself out of it. and and. The stigma and the thought of approaching an addiction treatment provider, I can remember, was was paralytic. It just wasn't going to happen for me at that time. So I didn't make any effort at all, Terry, okay. in, in seeking out treatment. Even, even working at an institution where at the time they were one of the premier addiction treatment programs in the country, okay. I, I wouldn't approach those folks. Right. You know, knew those individuals, but that's how strong the stigma is. Interesting. And and your comment that your brain is telling you you don't have a problem and you didn't that so that's interesting. I I didn't realize that, you know, some of that was going through oh, yeah. the mind as well. So it's not just about hiding it from people. It's also no. that I don't have I don't have a problem. No. Again, as a pharmacist, you know, I, I I can always remember stepping back and going, Okay, this is getting bad, but I can stop when I want to because okay. I know these drugs better than anybody else. And I could remember that conversation. Go well. I don't need treatment. I'm just going to stop. This is crazy. It's obviously affecting my life. It's affecting my my marriage. Uh, I can't do this anymore. And and I'd say I'd stop. And of, of course I would for a, you know six to eight weeks, and then I'd be right back at it. Okay. And when you talk about how nobody confronted you about, well, I shouldn't say nobody, but most people didn't confront you they're worried about that confrontation piece. How much of it do you think is that they just, they may know something's wrong, but it doesn't, I mean, I, I encounter so many people that are just flat out ignorant yeah. that a healthcare professional would engage in any of these activities. So how much of it do you think is just ignorance that they didn't even consider that's what was going on? I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think the large percentage of it is ignorance. Um, you know, again, I, I look back to a couple of these jobs where I was having these cycles and, and it was clear in some of them that no one had any clue. No, that didn't even cross anybody's mind that that was yeah. going on. It was just, well, this guy's got some issues. He doesn't want to work. He's obviously not serious about it. But I think you're right. I think primarily it just doesn't cross people's minds because Again, especially in healthcare, we weren't trained that way. We weren't yeah. trained on this. I was trained on addiction as a subset of my psychiatry module, whereby addiction was something that could complicate depression. That was the pitch. And, and we discussed it for literally 20 minutes. And it's gotten a little better, but addiction is not still part of the core curriculum for most, most healthcare providers. Yeah. I think back about a pharmacist that I worked with. I don't know, 28 years ago. Yeah. And he was odd, really weird, yeah. um, and just did some weird stuff. And years later, I found out that he was engaged in, in diversion. And it's like, oh, I wonder if that's what was going on. But at that time, I was ignorant too. I didn't, you know, I wasn't in this field. It wasn't something I worked in. And so I can't help but wonder, okay, I, I just called him weird, odd. Yeah. yeah. Um, didn't yeah. like him much. 
but yeah, you uh, talk about educating people. You recently commented on a blog that I wrote and how it's important to train healthcare providers and administrators on how to identify and appropriately screen for substance abuse. And I totally agree with that. Do you have any uh, words of wisdom for people out there and into how to accomplish that kind of education and drive those points home? Yeah, I, I think, great question. I, I think it needs to start with almost like in services um, with, with, again, your staff and, and being able to identify what some of those signs and symptoms are. And, and when we talk about healthcare providers with substance use issues, there's actually a lot of solid published data around what this looks like as a disease. There's almost a lot of signs and symptoms that are are very, very consistent. And I think we need to be, make people aware of that. The, the other piece, and, and again, that has to be presented in the context of we're not trying to catch you. We're not trying to, to hurt you. We're just saying people are going to struggle with this. And if there's an issue, then please come to us. Well, right. Well, let's, we'll point you in the right direction. It'll be confidential um, and so forth. So I I really think it needs to start there. The the other piece that I always found interesting, again, in retrospect was every job I had during the period of my substance use, there was a clause in my contract that said I could be randomly urine drug screened at any time without explanation. And in 15 years of substance use, that never happened once. And I understand why, because that's confrontational, that's accusatory to people. But I think if we instituted just routine, randomized urine drug screens in our healthcare providers, and again, it was presented as an issue of we're trying to help folks, you know, being very clear that we're not going to turn you into the police, you know, we'll get you the help that you need. Um, I think that needs to become more of a part of our, our standard workforce. Um, whether it's healthcare or or anybody else, uh, yeah, the numbers. I'm yeah. surprised more places don't do that, and I think now too in states where marijuana is legal, that is a whole different ball games that yeah. that people just want to avoid it because then there's that whole conflict yeah. there too. What do we do? Right, right. Yeah, no, there's a lot more that we can be doing. It certainly is. So you're the co-founder of Renovo Health. Yes. Tell us about the services you provide. Yeah. Do you operate a recovery center or you do consultation for those that do? So Renovo is actually a consulting group. We do a lot of different things. Um, we have a lot of the addiction thought leaders that are in the field from physicians, therapists, nurses, um, and we do a variety of different things. Some of our, our advisors do provide direct care. Um, I have provided direct care in the past, um, but I, I kind of switched gears a little bit with Renovo a few years ago when we started seeing a big growth in technology around substance use. And, and one of the things that we noticed, myself and, and our partners, was that a lot of clinicians are not comfortable treating addiction, so therefore they don't treat it. Um, we have an obvious shortage of mental health and addiction providers in this country. And a lot of it is just lack of confidence in being able to do it. So we've kind of shifted a little bit and our focus right now is building out tools and, and software and applications that will help physicians better treat addiction from an evidence-based standpoint. Great. Yeah, I can see it. It would probably would be a kind of intimidating for physicians. Very. That 
all have experience with that. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So, yeah. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your willingness to share your story. I, I can't help but think that every time a healthcare professional hears your story, it, it makes a difference to those of us that are engaged in the, you know, diversion mitigation and um, monitoring piece of it to potentially those that may have a problem themselves and recognize that there is good at the end there can be good at the end right yeah get that help that they need yeah certainly. thank you jake thank you terry for all you do appreciate it all right we'll Take talk care. soon you bye bye-bye